On this episode of Deal and Extend, we discuss smaller, more focused Linux distros. This episode of Deal and Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. Welcome to episode 92 of Deal and Extend. Deal and Extend is a community-powered podcast. We take conversations from around the DLN community, places like the DLN Discourse Forum, Telegram Group, Discord Server, and more. We also snag topics from shows around the network and give you our takes. With me today are my two wild and crazy co-hosts, Nate and Matt. How are you guys? Couldn't be better. Not bad at all. Not bad. So for you, Matt, you got to do anything fun lately or just... All the work stuff. Work, work, more work. You know, unfortunately, I get to be the adult, apparently. Yeah, I mean, well, we got Nate here, so that's, there's never an adult there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. That's the reason I said it. <laughs> I really haven't had a lot of time to do a lot of stuff I kind of wanted to. So, unfortunately, just been a lot of being an adult, working, and, you know, babysitting people that I would prefer to get paid a whole lot more to babysit than I do. Mm, gotcha. But you're coming to the end of your busy season, so it should start slowing down or is it going to stay pretty crazy for a while still? Uh, I'm hoping it slows down because I'm getting quite tired. Burnt out? It's been a long couple of months. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. But while well, I've been doing lots and lots and lots of work for, you know, living, Nate, you've actually been working on some other projects though. Want to talk about those? Yeah, I'm kind of revisiting something that I've been keeping up. To be fair, I've been a bit lax as of late, but one of the things that actually got me started in doing cubiclenate.com and every other, all the other documentation stuff that I like to do was trying to have a good, repeatable method of installing the DoD CAC requirements for smart card on Linux. So years ago, when the Department of Defense started forcing the usage of using the ID with a like smart card chip in there for accessing sites and um, email and such instead of password, it was a big pain in the us. I scoured the internet and between various different, this is how you get it all set up. There wasn't a repeatable method that I found for getting it to work. And so I put it initially on the OpenSUSE wiki as a step-by-step -step, install this package, install this package. Things change, certificates change, the process has changed a little bit. So there were some changes to how the certificates were distributed. The middleware is not really relevant anymore. So I went through and I cleaned up all the documentation and made it so it's actually easier to install and also made it so ensured it was repeatable and he had the right certificates because some of those things have changed and so forth. So I tested it on OpenSUSE, Fedora, Ubuntu, and MX Linux. Everything's good to go. The certificates do work with Firefox and with Chrome. I tested them both. So you shouldn't get any like crazy certificate failure errors and whatnot. It took me a while to do, but I got it done. I'm happy about it. And so I can not think about that for a while now. That's really cool that you are updating these other tutorials and instructions that you've done in the past that have now changed. It's really frustrating when you're trying to find a solution to a problem and the only thing that you can find is very, very old solutions that are no longer relevant. They don't work completely. And it's awesome to see someone keeping up on 
their documentation and refreshing that. Yeah, because I think bad documentation or old documentation is equally as frustrating as non-working or... None. None, yeah. So I wasn't getting any complaints and I was still answering emails to help people out with it. I started having a problem with a particular site. And so I dug into the problem, found the solution and uh, shared it with everybody. Awesome. So Wendy, you have actually finished one of the games you purchased. Is this the first? This is not the first game that I've finished, but it's the first game that I've finished (laughs) in quite a long time. I talked about Creepy Tail on the last episode and I have actually finished the first one. I already have the second one downloaded and ready to go. I still highly recommend that game if you like puzzle style games, really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to the next one coming up. I know as I was playing the last little bit of Creepy Tale 1, you're in like these castles and something happened in there and my husband's like, oh, that's not good. And I'm like, nope, she totally deserved it. If you played the game, you'll get it. I'm Don't want to give away spoilers (laughs) because you are following a bit of a storyline as you're going through the game. So I'm like, nope, it's totally cool. She deserved it and went away with a successful happy ending story. And now it's time to dive into another one where another troll can eat off my face. (laughs) Well, that's graphic. Um, Another reason why I don't care for trolls, I guess. I mean, except for Matt. And... um, (laughs) Wait a minute. No, you don't care for me. Let's be real with that. Troll totally, though. No, he does care for you, but he did call you... I do care for Matt. ...an ugly little evil troll, so Which is there's that. not false. I'll have you know it's very comfy under my bridge, thank you. Because he's got it lined with tech. This episode of Deal and Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now's the perfect time to dive into DigitalOcean. Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever using a simple, intuitive interface. Simply point App Platform to your GitHub or GitLab repository and let it do all the heavy lifting. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, and containers. By running App Platform on their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your costs significantly lower than any other products. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup, too. As a DLN Extend listener and member of the DLN community, you can get started building your world-changing app on their App Platform for free. And it gets better. DigitalOcean will give you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash dln. Again, go to do.co slash dln to get started with your free $100 credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. It's typically the big distros that are getting all of the news with their updates and the big things that are happening in them. We want to spend a little bit of time focusing on the smaller distros, the ones that are only run by one or two people, or maybe have a really direct focus in who they are targeting. Matt, is there any of these smaller distros that you like to use? Is there some that are kind of your favorites out there? Well, most people would know by now that I'm the one that probably uses the most weird esoteric distros that are possibly made. 
Let's be honest. That is what you are known for, yes. Besides gaming, you are known for using strange hardware and small esoteric distros. Totally. And I am totally fine with that. So yeah, I do actually use a lot of these um, smaller distros. I might not use them. I try them. As an example, one of the ones that I use is uh, Chaos or K-A-O-S. I like to see what a distro that specifically focuses on one toolkit, one build, and one direction. So for those that don't know what Chaos is, it's an independent distro that uses Pac-Man and like an AUR mentality with a focus specifically on only developing QT and KDE. If you look in the repos, barring the community repos, you're not going to find any GTK stuff. You will not find any 32-bit stuff. It is 64-bit only KDE focus. And I find that interesting. I'm not a big fan of like a lot of the default settings, but it's stuff like that that I can tend to appreciate in some of these more smaller kind of focused distros and what they're looking to do. Because what we find with a lot of the bigger distros is it's usually just like, you know, if you look at, say, Fedora, and then you go look at Ubuntu, yes, like the package managers are different. Yeah, there's, you know, Snap or Flatpak more surface level stuff they do interesting stuff but it's not interesting enough for me to be willing to be like oh i'm gonna go try fedora or i'm gonna go try ubuntu it's just like the identity is basically the de that you interact with for the most part to me and i find a lot of the smaller distros are the ones trying different stuffs with de's and trying different things to see what works what doesn't work and there's a lot of stuff that maybe the bigger distros could actually pull from some of some of these smaller distros do you think it's easy easier for the smaller distros to do some of these new things or different things because they wouldn't have as much maybe large community backlash for trying something and it maybe not working or, oh my gosh, that's really different. I think they're a little more free and the communities that do develop around these kind of distros are a little more willing to accept developers trying some different stuff than, say, a bigger community would be. But like, I don't know, Fedora, Sousa. Sousa likes to experiment a little more, I'm not going to lie. Or, uh, but like an Ubuntu or any of those kind of mainline distros the derivatives of said distros, like uh, maybe a Kubuntu, they get away with a little more, like an Ubuntu budgie will get away with more because the community is smaller, especially the ones that use it specifically. So they're more willing to accept things like different applets or trying different things here and a little bit of there and that kind of stuff. One of the distros that I used or tried for a while that I backed on Patreon was one called ExternOS. They're using JavaScript. I don't remember exactly which version of JavaScript they were using for a lot of the DE stuff. They were one of the few distros that actually did rounded corners right. This is just as an example of like something that I would notice is this is going to be a Rocco kind of thing. You would notice when the distros try to do like rounded corners and stuff, there's like these weird spacing around like a padded spacing over in the corners that you would see within the window as far as like when you interact with it. So you would grab it instead of actually grabbing the corner of the window where the rounded corner was, it's more like a box still. So the perception is, yeah, it's rounded, but the actual interaction isn't. Well, Xterran actually fixed that in one of their releases. The actual interaction with rounded corners was rounded corners. So it's stuff like that I tend to notice, hence the reason why I would prefer to try some of these more weird, esoteric, smaller, use case-focused distros. I think with any organization, the smaller the organization is, the more agile they are so they can experiment more and do different things. 
without, like you said, without any backlash, that's some of the benefit of these smaller distributions. Like I'm thinking like Farron OS, he's able to do things in his distribution because it's basically him. He can shape it and craft things the way he would like to see them crafted. And there's something to be said for that. It does target maybe a smaller, more focused group of people, but a smaller, more focused group of people that have similar goals and ambitions in mind. It's a lot easier to keep that agile and go forth doing interesting things. Yeah, absolutely. It's being able to take whatever you want, whatever's on your brain, and then share it with your small community and get some feedback and have this really positive flowing experience on something like Farron, he's creating the distro that he wants in the way he wants to use it. And you can either use it or not, right? It doesn't really matter to him. He's building it for himself. And if you enjoy it too, fantastic. Here it is. And you also get to play with it. Then you have the different distributions Matt was talking about where there's an overall goal. In the one that's built only from QT. I'm kind of curious what that stock user experience is like. I really need to find something that I can throw it on and go play with it. I enjoy using QT applications. Are there some on my system that aren't? Yeah, absolutely. There's actually several that are not. But when you have that overall cohesiveness, like elementary is trying to do, where they're trying to keep so many things the same and to flow smoothly across, it definitely has something to be said for itself. Are there parts of it that can be limiting? Yeah, absolutely. And so you can add those other applications onto it, but it does kind of break the overall goal of the distribution and having that flowing consistency across the board. And it just takes time, especially for these smaller distributions, to build up that consistency and bring more things in and have it fit with the structure that they're creating. I think a distribution that has seen a lot of very interesting development that we haven't covered yet is Solus. It's been in and out of the news over the years. It's a smaller distribution and they're doing things a little bit differently than other distributions. It's independent Everything from the package manager on up, it's all independent. And they developed the Budgie desktop, I do believe. They're in the news again lately because there's some changes going on in the leadership. They're changing how they're developing Budgie in the future. Do you think that smaller distributions or focused distributions have an issue of there's maybe a little trepidation on the course that they can take going forward because it is driven by a smaller group of people? There can be some turmoil that way. And whether it's something like Solus, where you have the leadership that's changed in and out over the last few years, a little bit of drama going back and forth in other distributions over the years, that can be a struggle for these smaller distributions. And it's not that there isn't trauma and turmoil in the larger projects. It's just so large that that impact seems to be absorbed a little bit better. But when it's going on in a smaller distribution, it seems to be bigger news. It's like, oh my gosh, because you've got such a limited staff in general. The other thing that can be difficult if your main, if your home is a smaller distribution is sometimes they just go away for good. I've talked in the past about Corora was my first real distribution that I used on a daily basis. I absolutely loved it. And it was just a really small team that was putting it together and keeping it 
going and it just reached the point where their lives got busy and none of them could keep that project growing and I was really really sad to see it leave. We were talking before the show and I have a bunch of old backups on my backup drive. Inside the backup folder on my backup drive is when I went to reload a system or you know something going on and I would just pull everything off of the laptop, tablet, whatever and throw it into a folder with a date. I have some old Corora 24s in that folder from February of 2017. And it just made me once again miss that distro. The nostalgia for having it around and really wishing that I could still use it and play with it. After it went away, I had a little bit of buffer time in order to find something new But it was difficult. I had found a place that I loved. I had found a place that I was planning on staying forever. Like that was the distro I was set to use. And over the following six months, I bounced around quite a bit enough to really irritate Magneto. Because he was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) I don't care what you use on the system, but I would like to come home and use the same thing twice. I'm like, oh. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's understandable. And I eventually did find Manjaro and settle on it. And I've now been using it here for, what, a couple years, three years, something like that. But the transition between this is something that I was set to use and then it was gone. I'm sure other members of the community have been through that situation with some of these smaller distributions. They loved it. It was what they wanted to use and now it was gone. So either you need to figure out how to code, find the time to do that, or find a different distribution. And that can definitely be an upheaval in your day-to-day just get work done life. Yeah, I know that consistency for me is key. In my world, I tend to cram things together, so I don't leave a lot of white space in my days. And so when something doesn't go right, it can send a chain reaction of problems that can last an entire week or longer. And so I know that from my perspective, I don't deal very well with massive change that's unexpected that can cause workflow issues or or whatnot. Now, I don't think a lot of these small or focused distributions, that is a problem. Although, you know, someone might say that maybe with Solus right now, that that could be a problem. But I wonder if maybe the lack of adoption or the slower adoption for some people on these smaller distributions, that that might be a concern for other people as well. Yeah, it definitely is, I think, for some. But there are plenty of these smaller distributions that have been around for a while that are doing great, that have fantastic communities around them. MX is one of them. It's not one that I've particularly used myself, but anybody who does use that distribution only has praise for it. They love what the team is doing. They love that they can interact personally with the developers and have that one-to-one feedback on it. And it just fits their needs and their use case in a way that other distributions don't. And just because it's small, yeah, you can run into problems like I did with Corora, but just because it's a small base distro doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go away next week. I think sometimes though, what we don't take into account is what the actual upstream that these smaller distros decide to be based on or around, how that and those choices affect the smaller distros. And sometimes I don't think the bigger projects take that into consideration. As an example, Gnome, Gnome, Nom, 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 however you want to pronounce it. (laughs) A lot of distros 
will base their pointy, clicky, gooey user interface around GNOME. And GNOME is not always the most receptive to different ways of doing stuff. I'm not saying they don't, but GNOME as a project views what they are working on, like GNOME, as a platform to be built around. So they have a vision, they have a way of they want to do things. That means from top to bottom, across the board, and that as bad as it sounds, they want the distros that rely on them to fall in line. That's my interpretation of how GNOME thinks. Just by, if you look at their history of how they interact with things that, that are based around them or on them, you know. Oh, we don't need extensions. Oh, you want to customize your stuff for your distro? Too bad. <laughs> you know, that's kind of their MO. Or just look at the frustrations with using Budgie as an example. The frustrations that people like Joshua Strobel have had with being based on GNOME and how they have to not have the most ideal user experience because of, well, decisions upstream is made that affects downstream projects, smaller downstream projects. I get a lot of it. Uh, I get GNOME's position on what they're calling, you know, their platform. And again, I get it. I'm not agreeing with it. I will say that some of that is on those other distros, other smaller distros. If you know the attitude of an upstream project, you might not want to use it. Just saying. Situations like that can definitely be harder for the smaller distro. And I'm just looking at this from somebody on the outside looking in. But they don't have the ability to change fast or make quick changes. If decisions upstream make it so certain things won't work anymore, it can be quite frustrating in some cases, not only for the developers, for the user, because here's this thing that wasn't necessarily anticipated by the distro maintainers that now requires extra work. Maybe that's later nights. Maybe that's a weekend where they're not spending time with their family in order to fix those kind of things. And just saying thank you to those maintainers of these smaller distributions and all of the work and personal time that they spend in maybe dealing with some of those fires in the background that maybe sometimes you don't see because they've already fixed it before you see it or just letting the community know, I know this is now an issue, we'll work on it, but it'll be X, Y, Z before we can get there. I also kind of wonder about like with smaller distributions, if their funding models will hold up because server space isn't free, development cost isn't free, and a lot of it's driven on passion, a love for the art, for the science of it. So I kind of wonder from time to time, how that long-term viability of a small distribution. I think some distributions like elementary, they kind of have things figured out. They have a model for how they're going to monetize the distribution. That to me seems like a very secure distribution. Some, I'm not going to say names, but some out there, I worry, I shouldn't say worry, that's not a good term. I'm a little bit concerned as to whether or not they're going to be able to stick around, which does bring some distribution adoption hesitancy from me. That seems to be a struggle even for applications with inside our community how do you keep things funded? How do you keep things running? And with a distribution, that can be so much more overhead depending on what you're doing. If you're based on something like Ubuntu, you do have the advantage of being able to use their repositories. But if you are elementary, if you're soulless, if you are using your own pre-built repositories inside of this distribution that you're creating, 
yeah, you're right. There is more of an overhead that you have to account for and making sure that you are getting the funding that you need to keep those projects going has got to be probably one of the biggest stressors of it. And I can see it being a concern for somebody who is trying to decide what they're going to pick as this is on my system. This is what I'm using to get the day-to-day work done. I need to be able to turn it on and it just works. One good thing about Linux is because Linux is Linux and others that may be arguable for some, but because the core of it is basically the same, should your distribution that's a smaller one disappear or have a major shift because it's likely based off of some existing technology already, you know, like Plasma as the desktop environment and so forth, that translating it and pushing your data to a new distribution. I mean, people hop distributions all the time, but to move to that, a new distribution is not that big a deal, really. It has more to do with, I think, like all the maybe, for lack of a better term, higher level functions that really tax your system, I suppose, or that require specific bespoke configurations. So that is a kind of a security blanket. I mean, the fact there are other Linux distributions does make it a little bit safer to experiment with some other smaller Linux distributions. Yeah, that's for sure. But in my case, when Corora went away, it actually was a pretty big upheaval. Yeah, there was Fedora. And you can get one with Plasma on it because by that time I was now using Plasma as my desktop environment, but it wasn't the same. Corora had so much more that was prepackaged and built into it. And yeah, there were things that I removed after I got it installed, but I knew if for any reason I could quickly get it on the system and I was really close to being ready to go. That's one of the advantages, I guess, that some of these smaller distributions can offer you is you find one that's kind of tailored to how you want to start, how you want a fresh install to be, and then you can make your finalizing tweaks from there. And Corora was perfect for me in the beginning for that. And I had to find something else that was like that. I commend people who can do Arch the Archway or Linux from scratch, but I need something that is almost ready to go. There is no distribution that'll be 100% ready to go for me out of the box because we're all individuals and need to make our own tweaks and adjustments, installs, removal. But Corora was pretty gosh darn close to what I needed out of the box. Now that's Manjaro. If Manjaro ever went away, it would be an issue in trying to find something else that ticked all those boxes for me and was a clean install. I do these next few things and we're rocking and rolling. Yeah, I think the nice thing that people don't realize with some of these smaller distros is the pre-configured stuff, the out-of-the-box experience, whatever you want to call it, is tailored by the distro maker a little more than, say, the general end user distros like an Ubuntu or a Fedora or any of that kind of stuff. These are distros that generically most of these guys will be running themselves. So that's a really nice thing sometimes because I know for me, as an example, while Wendy is a Manjaro user, most of my Arch use is done through Guru to Linux now. And I don't mean the gaming edition specifically. I use the Guru to Dragonize edition because it has a lot of the easy setup stuff that I would need to do anyway within the installer. So it's just when you boot it up for the first time, it's like, oh, do you want to install these additional KDE components? It's like, yes. What do you want to install for a web browser? 
which right now my thing is Vivaldi. So instead of, I think they use Fire Dragon as their web artist. So stuff like that, little improvements like that is not something you generically get in a more catch-all kind of mainstream distro, which is something I really like. Well, Groot is an interesting you want to call it smaller distribution because it is based on Arch and in many ways they're not managing a lot of their own bits and pieces. If Garuda disappeared, you're still running Arch ultimately. Yes, ultimately you are still running Arch. I think this might be a little difficult where you are a OpenSUSE user and so it's hard to explain if you use one of these other smaller, more tailored distros the advantages that they give in your setup and you're getting started. And while if you're not used to some of these very individualized tweaks from a smaller distribution, you're like, ah, it's no big deal. You can just do it. The thought of Manjaro going away actually kind of gives me a little bit of a panic attack. I don't want to think about that anymore (laughs) at all because, yeah, I can do those tweaks myself. And if Manjaro went away, I could use a different distribution that is based on Arch. But I like the way Manjaro does it. I like the time savings that it gives me. It's almost like a warm, comfy blanket or my favorite pair of pajamas on a cold winter day. Like it's home, it's snuggly, and it's just what I need. You know, it's funny you say that a Lynx distribution is like a snuggly blanket because my favorite distribution happens to have plushie that I keep by my desk. But that <laughs> on the side, there is a smaller kind of focus distribution based on OpenSUSE called Geeko Linux. But it's basically all of, on top of OpenSUSE, they have just some customization, probably much like Garuda is for Arch or, you know, Endeavor is for Arch. But as I call it Geeko, it's, you know, the chameleon is called the Geeko, which is kind of confusing because people think it might be a gecko. But anyway, that aside, I haven't tried it lately, but it was kind of a nice way to maybe more easily install for desktop use OpenSUSE. And that is actually, it's convenient. It's very convenient. And so I see the kind of the need for that because OpenSUSE is so general in how it's set up. But having something that's more focused or more specific to a particular need, I absolutely see the utility in that. And those other special use cases, I've talked about it already a thousand times, but you take elementary and a new user, yeah, it's a smaller base distribution, but it was exactly what I needed, what I needed to be able to hand somebody else at the time. These smaller distributions are invaluable in the niches that they fill and the other options that they give a user. Yay for Linux and all of the variety that's out there. This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager we use and trust. It's the easiest, safest way for individuals, teams, businesses, and organizations to store their passwords and other vital sensitive information. Bitwarden lets you choose the authentication to access your password manager, such as PIN, master password, and adding phrases or fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. Bitwarden is a password manager that I use and trust because Bitwarden is 100% open source. It has extensive security audits. It gives you the ability to self-host if you so choose. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. It's only $10 for a premium account, which gives you one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, and more. Make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. If you're like me, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the Premium Edition, especially since the Premium Edition starts at only $10 annually. Bitwarden has saved me from getting into a serious jam numerous times. Now, 
you wouldn't be able to pry it from my cold, dead device. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. Matt, last week you brought us a smaller free-to-play game. This week, are you back on your regular anime track? <laughs> I don't know what you're inferring, Wendy. It's not like I have an obsession with like specifically you know, Japanese role-playing games or anything. That train is really uh, unstoppable. <laughs> it's rolling fast. <laughs> Watch out. As unstoppable as your love for open Susa, Nate. I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> Okay, so the argument was just ended there. Yeah, that was yep. it. That's now it's over. Yep. Yeah, we're kind of back on the anime-ish type video games. This one is Valkyria Chronicles. It was originally released back in like 2008 on the PS3. Some years ago, Sega decided to release this on PC. The cool thing with this is it's like a strategy RPG more than a typical um, like turn-based Japanese RPG. It deals with more of a World War One, World War Two, like what if an imaginary world country, whatever. You just kind of play this ragtag like French kind of resistance kind of deal. The thing that I love about it is the way the story is told. It's through interactive painted cutscenes. So if you're like very much into art, you'll start seeing like motion and the pain that they're using for the cinematic. You'll start seeing like the traced outlines and then you'll start seeing the color being painted in and stuff. So it's little stuff like that that makes it more of like a living book almost, like a living coloring book being presented to you through the story and whatnot. So that to me is a really cool aspect of this game. I do like the art style a lot. It's obviously 3D art, but it has like that classic 2D feel in how it's colored and how it's rendered. That doesn't even sound right, but do you know what I'm saying? Like It's very clean looking and doesn't have that overly... 3D mm-hmm. graphics look about it. It looks like it could have been hand-drawn, perhaps. That's, maybe that's not the best way to advertise it either. It doesn't look overly computer-generated. It's well-masked. Yes. I like the art style. I like the theme of it. it. looks like the game is still a little bit on the new side for a guy like me. I see 2014, <laughs> so that's... So it came out in 2014 <laughs> on PC. So the game's older than that. It came out in 2008 for your ps3 which i know you have how do you know that how do you know it's 12 feet from me right now because you've told him because it's almost (laughs) like you've told me before or something oh oh, that's right (laughs) and by the way you can get it dirt cheap on the ps3 if you want physical Hmm. just saying oh okay well i do want physical actually get it on the ps4 too if you want so nate yeah to go with what you were saying the 2d book style art style is the thing that i really like about it though the way the story is presented and stuff and it's not that typical 3d animation way of doing it which i think is a very interesting and nice way of doing it because there are other games in this series too um i know you can pick up the ps3 edition there is a ps4 like remaster that'll have most of the improvements for the pc version usually you can get it for about 20 bucks i think is the generic price but you can usually find it on sale for like five and this is like a 40-hour RPG. Definitely worth getting, though. I think it's a great suggestion. It looks a little bit too involved for my game right now, especially since I have a bunch of other game suggestions that you've given me that I haven't finished yet. Tux Murphy, anybody? Probably can't hop on this one immediately. Mega Man Collection? You can just be like Matt and I and just go ahead and get it, and then it can sit in your Steam library, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, I totally want to play that. I'll get around to it next year. I don't know what you're inferring there, Wendy. I really don't appreciate that. <laughs> 
You don't like the truth? Can you not handle the truth? I knew it was going mm. there. And no, he can't. <laughs> no, he can't. You can't. You can't nope, help it. You gotta. Just like Nate can't handle the truth that he is unhealthily obsessed with open Susa. Almost. Well, he lets it slip every now and again. He'll admit it and we'll catch it in a digital form so we can save it. And then he'll go back <laughs> to denial. Like, it's totally fine. We'll get him through. I can stop at any time. We just need to have an intervention. <laughs> yeah. I just don't want to. <laughs> Not necessary. It's totally controllable. I got a handle on it. So anyway, while... I'm making video game recommendations. Nate, it sounds like you have a place for people to kind of come together and talk about Linux, almost like a bar. It's true. So I'm going to tell you about Linux Saloon. It's going to be a new show on the Destination Linux Network. It is essentially a rebranding of Rocco's Big Daddy Linux or Biddle. Big reason for the rebrand is, well, I'm not Rocco or Big Daddy Linux. I really like the community. It's been kind of very special to me. Yeah, I didn't want the community to die. So I picked up the torch on it. Actually, Rocco gave me the keys to the cabin. I decided to run with it. And I've been doing it for several months now. Talking with Michael and, and Ryan, we decided we wanted to bring it into the Destination Linux fold. And I'm excited because the 15th of January will be the first episode. So by the time... You know, people hear this, it will have happened and they can watch it. They'll be able to go to the YouTube page at, you know, youtube.linuxsaloon.com. We'll take you there. You can join the Telegram as well, telegram.linuxsaloon.com and be a part of the conversation if you want to. It's going to be essentially Big Daddy Linux with a bit of a rebrand. The idea too is that Linux Saloon, there's a lot of puns you can do with that. And you always hear, you know, free as in beer in the Linux world. At the Linux Saloon, Linux is always on tap. There's always a pun around there. You know, we can talk about things like distro cocktails and also make sure that you please Linux responsibly. Be sure to tip your developers. Anyway, there's lots of puns. It's a lot of fun. We're going to have a good time with this. I'm going to try and really push or step up my streaming game, I guess, a little bit. Biddle, I just used what was there and continued with it. But I want to try some new things and maybe experiment more with OBS. So it's more opportunity for me to do more things, learn more stuff. And actually, I wouldn't, I'll never be an OBS expert. I'll rely on the masses, of course, but I want to make it more fun to watch as well. So that's what's going on. I'm spending a lot of time on that, working on the support pieces of it. The best part of it is since I'm merging it all with the Destination Linux network, it's going to be a lot less like work on my end as far as like the upkeep of things. So we'll be using the Destination Linux forums. We'll be using the Destination Linux Discord as well. And just being a part of the network, I'm hoping that, you know, it'll be a good way to spread another conversation. And uh, and of course, I'll be plugging Linux out loud on there as well, or VLN Extend, whenever that name change finally takes place. Yeah, so I'm very excited about it. I'm hoping that other people from the network will be able to join like, you know, you, Wendy and Matt. I know that time constraints, like, and I don't expect you to be there all the time, but I just be myself as a facilitator of the conversation. I don't want to be the centerpiece of it because I think that's not what the show is about. It's focusing on the community and exciting happenings for different people. So it's kind of an online Linux users group that we stream on the YouTubes. I'm looking forward to Saturday for sure. It's a really fun name and direction that you're taking this already established online Linux users group. Biddle has been a staple of the community for so long. It was great to see you pick it up and keep going. And I can only see more fun and exciting things coming with this little bit of shift change. The heart of it will still be there. It's about the users and having that conversation about what they're doing in Linux and the distributions that they are trying and using. All of the dad jokes, you already had them in there. All of these puns and dad jokes will be there. Kind of like Michael Heaven. Mm -hmm. Yes. I was really hoping to make it to your very first show, but unfortunately, your first Linux Saloon, we have state first Lego League, but I will be with you there in spirit. I appreciate that. I understand that people have lives. If you have nothing better going on and you want to be a part of the conversation, you can just 
hang out in the YouTube chat, send funny things or contribute to the conversation there. You can show your face or avatar over Zoom, be a part of the conversation, however you feel comfortable. The other thing too is, you know, we got to be careful because we don't want people on any late night distro exploration vendors because that could be damaging. So, you know, please remember to Linux responsibly. So Wendy, I understand that there's some new exciting hardware for you that has come in the form of a camera corner piece of sorts. Yes, it has. I didn't get to talk about it much on the last episode of Hardware Addicts because we had such a huge focus on monitors during that episode. I did get to tell you about it a little bit. I still haven't got to play with it. Of course, we recorded Hardware Addicts on a Tuesday night. We're recording this show, DLN Extend, on a Wednesday morning. So even though you're getting these a little bit far apart, I still haven't got to play with this lens too much, though I do absolutely love looking at it. If you follow me on Mastodon, I shared the new lens alongside two other lenses just so you can see how compact this mirror telephoto lens is. It's just amazing how small it is compared to traditional refractive lenses. Don't worry if you missed it. I will drop it into the discourse form with the rest of the show information so you can take a look at it there. That's probably one of my favorite parts about this lens so far, even though I haven't got to play with it. It's just so small. Okay, it's still really big around, but lengthwise, it fits pretty much into the palm of your hand. It's really light. It does have a bracket on it to use it with a tripod, but really, I don't think for the most case that that's necessary. If we go to one of the lenses that I have in the picture, which is a refractive, traditional refractive lens that goes from two to 400 millimeters. If you have this thing stretched out to 400 millimeters, you absolutely need to have not the camera body on the tripod, but the lens on the tripod, just because there is so much weight there's so much more glass involved in that. And in order to keep things stable, that lens itself has to be mounted. And then your camera body is a little bit more free-flowing. The weather needs to let the moon come out so I can take some pictures of it. That's kind of one of the things I'm really looking forward to. The other kind of interesting thing about this lens is, as I've mentioned before, it is stuck quote unquote at an f8 so you can't change the aperture it doesn't have that iris inside of it where you can reduce the amount of light that's coming in or allow for more it's stuck at that f8 but in the very very back if you take off the back lens cover there is an additional little filter so you're used to seeing these screw-on filters that you can put on the front of lenses. This mirrored lens has one of those filters at the very, very back. Now, they're actually quite tiny. I will drop a picture of that in the discourse form as well. And one of the ways that if you need to cut out light for this lens is take off the protective one that's on there and put on a neutral density filter so you can reduce the amount of light overall that's hitting your sensor. Now that is definitely a little bit more time consuming than being able to just change the aperture on the lens. But if you need something that reaches way, way out there and is easy to pack in your camera bag, this is absolutely amazing. I do not like to pack my two to 400 lens. Of course, it's not a really fancy two to 400 lens. It's a manual focus, 
but so is this 500 millimeter. I don't really mind manual focus. I kind of like the older manual focus lenses. Of course you would. Well, I have some questions for you on that lens. Absolutely. I just want to understand. So 500 millimeters, what does that mean? Like when I look at those numbers, I see the different numbers of each of those lenses, but what does that mean as far as... But that has something to do with how much it can focus or the variation of the focus or, or what does that mean? Yeah, this is basically coming down to where is that focus point? Where is that light focusing onto your sensor or before on film? Where is that focusing on the film? Now, in general terms, when you're looking at the millimeters of a lens, how much are you seeing? So if you're using a 10 millimeter lens, then you have this extremely wide fish-eyed field of view and you're getting sky and ground and a whole bunch of peripheral. And the larger that number gets, the more you are narrowing in, you're narrowing your focus on what you are taking a picture of. And then the farther it's reaching out, the more that it's magnifying. So this 500 millimeter lens will create a really awesome moonshot. Whereas I could take a beautiful night sky or a landscape with a 24 millimeter lens. Most of the time, you really don't have to just think the smaller that number, the wider, the more I'm going to see, the more that's going to be hitting my sensor. And the larger that number goes, the more I'm zooming in, the more I am tightening up and you can really isolate things that are in the distance. This would also be a great lens for bird photography as long as you were in a place where you could be stabilized and be able to manual focus those birds. There's a whole lot of numbers when it comes to photography. Some of them are easier to understand than others. We'd like to continue the discussion with you on Telegram, in Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Visit the DLN website for information on how to contact the social channels and all the shows and creators at destinationlinux.network. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links in the bottom of the show description or drop a message on the contact form by visiting dlnextend.com contact. Be sure to check out the DLN merch store. Grab yourself some awesome DLN Extend swag while it's still around, along with stuff from the other shows across the network. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of DLN Extend, maybe Linux Out Loud. Until then, have a great week, everyone. 